0: Uh, here we are then, the last in um, this current series called The Disciples Toolkit, where week by week we're putting into our uh, discipler's rucksack things that we need to help us in the task of discipling. And we're thinking about discipling this morning and over these last few weeks from a particular perspective. You've got the idea, Who's who's this? Me, that's right. This is you. This is you. That's right. And you are who you are because someone else or some others loved you, shared Jesus with you, prayed with you, encouraged you, disciplined you, uh, taught you, uh, gave you hope when you were despairing, and uh, uh, hugged you and held you when you were uh, out of your tree with whatever. There are those people in our lives that have taken us, uh, metaphorically or perhaps quite literally by the hand, and led us on in our Christian journey. And I hope over these last weeks you've been thanking God for the, the kinds of people that have done that for you over the years. There are uh, many of them, perhaps parents and family members, or we even think back to Sunday school teachers from long ago that loved us and encouraged us and helped us. So if that's one way of us thinking about discipleship, that is those that have helped and encouraged us, then there is an obvious uh, continuation of that. And then that's for us to think about those that we should be similarly, taking by the hand, encouraging, helping, teaching, training. And as we've thought about over these weeks, discipleship is not so much instruction, but it is imitation. It is the opportunity not just to learn, but to follow and to get involved. And as we've said, week by week, every disciple should be discipling someone somewhere, because that's what being a disciple means. Now, Each week I've put those slides up and I've encouraged us to think about the people that we need to be grateful for that have taken us by the hand. But who does the yellow person represent in your life? That is a crucial question as we long for God's kingdom to grow. The church as an organization doesn't grow really. It's only people that grow and people grow because we the people take others by the hand and lead them onwards towards faith and deeper into faith it's our job to make disciples and a byproduct of us making disciples is that the church itself grows so who are those people that God is asking or has asked or is asking you to take by the hand and to journey with? That, to me, seems to be a very crucial question. So what if there was a way to identify who those people might be? Well, let's turn to the passage that hopefully you've still got open in front of you, Luke chapter uh, 10. There's so much in these verses, and we'll draw out a few thoughts as we go through together uh, this morning. If you've got a pew Bible, you have the number uh, that Modumfo gave you earlier. Uh, if If you've got your own Bible... My encouragement a few weeks ago to bring your your own Bible. It's yours that you bring and you read and you take back home rather than kind of metaphorically or symbolically leaving the Bible in the pew and going back home only to engage in it when we come back next time. Bring your own Bibles uh, with you, the Bibles that you're opening day by day, whether they be a physical book or they be on your phone or however you do it. So verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed uh, 72 Others, as we've said many times, it's no surprise that 72 is a multiple of 12. What started with 12 soon became 72, and eventually to the ends of the earth. It's movemental. It's not just addition, a group of 12 adding one to their number, but it's a group of 12 each adding to themselves, each Of the twelve multiplying out. And of course if you know anything about the way uh, mathematics works. You get very quickly exponential growth. Two becomes four, becomes eight. And so it goes on and so forth. And what starts off as small numbers. You think isn't it weird that Jesus only concentrated on twelve. But what starts out as small numbers. If those twelve can replicate, can multiply themselves. Then the whole speed with which the gospel uh, grows becomes exponential. It's a, a movement of people and faith that Jesus inaugurated. And I think there are some uh, statistics, I, I can't remember what they are exactly, but it's something like, if, if each of us multiplied ourselves into three other people in a year, and taught those three other people to do the same, the whole world would come to faith within six years. The whole world Just because we did what Jesus said. Uh, uh, Those statistics might be uh, slightly out. Uh, I'll try and confirm them and tweet them out. But uh, it's uh, it's not far off the mark. A reminder that as we invest in a few to see our faith multiplied in them and teach them to do the same, we are starting a movement that would become unstoppable. I was struck last week. Um, As we were talking about meals and eating and tables and stuff, how many tables there are represented uh, in Ipswich in the name of Burlington as a community. Uh, and, And imagine each of our tables just beginning to multiply a little bit. We would see growth like we've never ever seen in this church, wouldn't we? Just because each of us multiplies ourselves uh, a little bit. I find that hugely encouraging. And suddenly it makes the task nothing like as big as it sometimes feels. When Jesus says take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We go, How on earth can we do that? And Jesus says well it's dead simple. Just multiply yourself into a few people around you. And teach them to do the same. And the gospel will unstoppably go to the ends of the earth. Notice though. There was companionship, comradeship, two by two, and uh, no doubt there were families somehow attached to these two it doesn 't tell us the whole story uh, does it two by two so where where are you isolated in your mission? Where do you need someone else to be journeying with you in your missional endeavor? Who might be able to partner? with you there. You will know in your workplace perhaps it feels very lonely and isolating to be a Christian there. You will also know that when you've taken the initiative to to gather other Christians together and some of you have done this beautifully in your workplace, at BT, at schools, in the NHS and gathered some people together that there's a sense in which you become the body of Christ in that place and there's a sense of uh, encouragement, enthusiasm, liberation, and so on, because you're in it together. So they went out two by two. Who do you need to grab by the hand and just say, hey, let's get in this together where God has placed us. Uh, And I love this prophetic phrase. It was a literal phrase here, but it it becomes prophetic for us. Two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Do you know where you put your foot in the name of Jesus is exactly where Jesus is about to go? Hello? You with me? He that is in You is greater than he that is in the world. And where you put your foot is where Jesus... I know Jesus is everywhere, but understand it in this context. It is where Jesus is about to go. In your homes, in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, in your street. uh, uh, As we step forward, incredibly exciting that he is uh, with us. Okay, verse 2. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I've had, well, a few years ago now, a revelation about this verse. We very easily read these verse, well, read any biblical verse, don't we, in our own context, in the context that we know, as if it was written to people sitting in a church like this in 2017. And so when pastors and preachers and, and manipulators use this verse... They're kind of going, oh, the church, there's no workers, and they get all downbeat and miserable and stuff. There's not enough workers, there's not enough workers, there's not enough workers, and it's a bit of a drumbeat, and I've done my fair share of moaning that there's not enough workers and all of that stuff. But, of course, that's our Western context. Jesus wasn't saying, look at all those Christians who are just sitting there doing nothing. Because there weren't any Christians sitting there doing nothing because there weren't any Christians. When Jesus said, pray that the Lord will send out workers, where were those workers? Not yet Christians. They were already in the harvest. You see what Jesus is saying? Pray that as you go and and you see people come out of the harvest, they become co-laborers, co-workers with you, which is exactly what Paul himself uh, went on to model, mimicking what Jesus had set in motion. The workers are, are out there in the harvest. And sometimes we think, oh Lord, send more workers. And what he wants to do... Is, is to produce more workers through the people that we will reach. And we've all discovered this. It's a lot easier to get people who've just come to faith to get stuck in than people who've had faith for a long time to do something. <laughs> is it? That, 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 that's just the reality. We've all been in churches and we all know that to be true. It's actually much easier. And some of our enthusiastic, most committed workers in Burlington are those that have had faith for, for a relatively short period of time. And those of us had faith for quite a long time, it's quite harder to get us shifted, actually. As George Verwer used to say, and still says, God's chosen, frozen. Uh, Jesus is saying something very interesting here, isn't he? About where you set your kind of focus, and and who are the the people that you're investing in, and uh, and what you should expect to see happen. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers, and by implication, they're people that are coming out of uh, the harvest then a weird verse. Okay, so the workers are in the harvest. Then a, then a weird verse. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Go on mission, they said. It'll be fun, they said. We, we, know, we know that there'll be opposition. Jesus said quite reassuringly, in this world there will be trouble. So when trouble comes, we don't go, it's all gone wrong, there's trouble. In this world there will be trouble. But what I want this verse to say is I'm going to send you out like big, massive bears that will be able to rip the wolves apart when they come and attack you. And actually what Jesus says, I want you to go out like, Bleh. a totally vulnerable, exposed sheep in a world of wolves. By the way, who's in? Uh, I think, w- w- what's going on there? Why does Jesus want to adopt a posture of being like sheep among wolves every time a preacher doesn't know how to answer it he says why don't you talk about that amongst yourselves off you go why why does jesus i'm serious about off you go why does jesus want us to adopt the posture of a vulnerable helpless sheep in a world of wolves why go brilliant to the man down at the front because he wants us to trust him to trust the shepherd. He wants us to trust him. If I think that I'm in control and I can make it all happen, who am I trusting in? How much fruit do we get when we trust in ourselves? None. He says, I want you to go out as vulnerable as sheep in a field of wolves so that you will trust me. See, mission and discipleship is something in the end that God does. It's not something that we can create or control or make happen. This is God's doing. And maybe that gives us a clue about verse 4 as well. You see, I expect verse 4 to say, take some money, take some food, because the people that you want to reach might be hungry and need feeding. Take some clothes in case you find someone who you can give some clothes to. Take some supplies for the journey. Take some nice gifts to use to introduce yourselves. And in fact, Jesus says the complete opposite. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Go empty-handed. Don't carry stuff with you, but go empty-handed. Why? I think for the same reason. If we carry gear and stuff with us, we will naturally begin to trust in the stuff and in the gear. What we need to be is radically committed to Jesus and single-mindedly knowing that in the end, that's all we really have to offer. Jesus is the only thing in the end that we really have to offer. You see, if I have a coat... I might be tempted to offer the coat. If I have some food, I might be tempted to offer the food. If a child is sick and I have some calpol, I might be tempted to offer the calpol. And not that any of that is wrong or bad, but Jesus is saying, when you go, what you have to offer single-mindedly is me, is me. Don't go with all your supplies, not only because that accelerates or strengthens the need for us to trust him, but it also is a constant, and we'll come back to this in a minute, it's also a constant reminder of making sure we don't fundamentally or primarily offer to people the wrong things. Don't greet anyone is about, I think, the same single-mindedness. It's not saying don't literally say hi to someone along the road, but there's a contrast being drawn here between the relationships that he talks about around verse 7 and 8, about building long-term, solid relationships, staying with people, and fleeting relationships with the people that you might pass in the street. Don't get distracted by the fleeting relationships. Don't get distracted by spending all day saying hi to people that you pass on the street, and then have no time for the relationships that really matter. So be single-minded about your relationships purpose who then back to that question we started with am i to disciple well jesus says here that we are looking for people of peace when you enter a house first say peace to this house if someone who promotes peace is there if a person of peace is there your peace will rest on them if not it will return to you stay there eating and drinking whatever you give for the worker does his wages do not move around from house to house look for someone who is open to to you, Someone who welcomes you. In fact, even more significantly, I think, someone who is willing to serve you. People who are willing to serve you will be open to the gospel, to the faith that you carry. And so we need to be vulnerable so that people have the opportunity to serve us. If we are self-sufficient, if we have everything that we need, if we are an autonomous unit, not requiring anything from anyone or anything else, that then we'll remain like that. But if we're open and vulnerable, people can respond to us, and it gives us an opportunity to understand who are the people that are open to us and to the faith that lies within us. Stay eating and drinking. Notice the use of meals. Cue all that we said uh, last week about meals and eating. So who are the people in your life that serve you? Who are the people that give you more of a welcome than others? So think about work maybe for a moment. Or think about your neighborhood, your street or the houses around it. There will be some people in your neighborhood that are a lot keener to help or to serve you than others. In your workplace, there will be some people who are a lot more open to you than to others in wherever else it is. And Jesus is saying here, as you go and bring who you are, as you bring your peace into an environment, look for those who will be open for it. So go back to that question, who is this in your life? And think about who is open to you, who is willing to serve you. Jesus talked about the farmer, didn't he? Who sows his seed. And, and we talk about that parable and we think about what kind of soil we are. There was the good soil and then there was the path and the rocky soil and the, all of that stuff. And uh, we've all uh, done pictures in Sunday school, perhaps if we've been to Sunday school and we all remember the flannel graph. Remember flannel graph? You're that old. You remember flannel graph? Really? Wow. And... and what was I talking about? Oh, the soils, the different soils. And we think about the soils. But Jesus is making a profound point also about the farmer. Because if you're the farmer with precious seed, where are you going to sow it? you are got to be careful where you chuck your seed. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Invest wisely because you've only got so much seed. You've only got so much time, so much relational energy, so much capacity, and so on. So think about where you invest. And Jesus makes the point with evangelism and with discipleship, we think evangelism is kind of forcing people to listen who don't want to. And actually Jesus says, no, no, look for the people that are open. In fact, don't spend time with the people that aren't open. Wait until they're open. Uh, Paul, the same, he prays for an opening for the gospel. We don't go kicking doors down. That's been some of the, the reason that evangelism and evangelists have got some really bad names. Because they're like, they're like hacking doors down into people's lives. Like the police with their big, what's that big thing? Do you know? Some, some ram, ramming things. You know? And sometimes you think, that evangelist has just got a big rammer. He's ramming it into us. And you think, oh... And it makes us cringe. And Jesus says that evangelism should be something that you enjoy and they enjoy. Discipleship, the same. You can't drag someone along. Discipleship is not grabbing hold of someone by the scruff of the neck and dragging them on. It is taking them by the hand. But of course they need to hold your hand in order for you to take them. And Jesus, of course, uh, modeled this, didn't he? Um, There were two people the same. They were consumed by their money. They were consumed by worldly wealth. One was called the rich uh, young ruler, and the other was called Zacchaeus. And they both responded very differently to Jesus, and Jesus responded very differently to them. He did not chase after the rich young ruler, who went away sad because he loved his wealth more than anything else, whereas I think I might have chased after him and tried to renegotiate the deal. You know, well, what if, what if you promised to give away a bit of your money a, a bit later? Or when you settle down, or whatever it might be. But Jesus is very clear, and he lets some people go because there's no opening there. There's no, there's no welcome there. There's no uh, a connection there. But with Zacchaeus, quite the opposite. There is an opening, there is a connection. And Jesus is bold enough and cheeky enough, if you'd like, to say, Zacchaeus, we're eating at your place tonight. Uh, And, of course, uh, Zacchaeus uh, comes to faith and his life is transformed and so on. So so we've got this freedom. It's a positive thing to find the people that are ready where there's a welcome. And you don't have to stick with your ram-raid truncheon having a go at someone when there is not an opening at this particular time or at that particular season. In fact, Jesus is quite releasing, isn't it? When you enter a town and are not welcomed, you can move on. You can move I'm not going to say what Jesus actually says because we think of Jesus being quite meek and mild and this doesn't really fit. Um, but, but he's making a very powerful point, isn't he? That actually, where there isn't an opening, you don't, need to, to, you don't need to get really frustrated and you don't need to feel like you've been a failure and you don't need to think, oh goodness, how many more years do I have to keep working with this group of people because I'm getting absolutely nowhere? There is a freedom in the gospel to move on. Now, having said that, I know there are times when Jesus says... I know you can't see any fruit, but dig in there for a while. And we all know stories where Jesus said to people, dig in there for a very long time. So, of course, there are always exceptions, and we listen to Jesus first. But generally speaking, there is a freedom to look to where there is fruit and to move on. You see, faithfulness by itself is not enough. We need faithfulness and we need fruitfulness because the vineyard owner absolutely requires the grapes and the wine in order to sustain his living. And Jesus says, my father is like that vineyard gardener. I absolutely need the workers to be faithful, but if they're not being fruitful, then their faithfulness alone will not be enough. And we just need to caution sometimes in church life, we elevate the value of faithfulness really high, and it's a good value, so don't misunderstand me. But if we elevate faithfulness too high, then we'll miss the point. And sometimes people say they've been very faithful as a way of explaining why nothing has really happened. They've been very faithful, but there's been no fruit. And if there is no fruit, then we need to think about what Jesus is saying to us in that uh, context. I love how Jesus, though, describes the whole discipling process in verse 8. I think it's very simple. Stay, build relationships, eat. We can all do that. We learned that last week. Pray and speak. Sounds a bit like a film, doesn't it? Or a best-selling book from someone. And suddenly it all comes together. Suddenly our vulnerability enables us to be in a place where we can offer the gospel as an invitation. You see, if you go into a scenario where you are the one on top, you are the one in control, you are the provider and they are the recipients, you are the one in control, in charge. And however you dress it up, it's not much of an invitation. It's more like a dogma. But when we go in as servants, when we go in as vulnerable people, needing their help, needing their support, then genuinely we can offer the gospel and it becomes an invitation. Uh, And I want to uh, just remind us of that verse that Uh, We read of early in the early church when um, they're going off to the temple to pray, and there's a beggar um, on the way in, and the beggar asks Peter and and John for money, and Peter says, "We don't have any money." Uh, And do you know what? It's a good job Peter didn't have any money because he might have given the money, and nothing else would have happened. You with me? Hello. You with me? You see, so so we come with our storehouse of stuff to bless the world. But sometimes that gets in the way because it's a lot easier to give a beggar a bit of money than to kneel down and pray for them. You with me? It's a lot easier. And so we will give the money, we will give our stuff much more easily than we will give ourselves, our faith and our praying. And maybe that's why Jesus said, when you go out two by two, don't take anything with you because you will be awfully tempted to use what you have in the place Of offering me and only me. I want to come into land then. With this idea of um, stay, eat, pray. So we've put people of peace perhaps as an idea in our toolbox. The last thing we're going to put in our toolbox. Is the idea of prayer. Because the way Jesus prayed. Seems to me to be quite different from the way you and I might often pray. Jesus modelled a prayer life in public. That was quite different. Here we go. Number one, he prayed first. Think about all the situations that Jesus goes into. He, he gets on with the praying bit pretty quickly. There are 31 individual healings in, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, effectively, what we read is that Jesus has went around praying for people. That's kind of what he did. He led out on prayer. So whatever the situation, uh, a leper, a blind man, a dead girl, a a bleeding woman, someone with demons, Lazarus who was dead, or just the requirement for a bit more food on the hillside, his kicking off point, his first step into the situation was to pray. Contrast that perhaps with us, where we will care for people, we will help people, we will love people, uh, and then maybe at the end of that we'll pray. So, so Jesus leads with the praying, whereas I think I'm more uh, likely to follow up with the praying uh, at the end. you, you with me? Uh, and so uh, there's something going on here for the way Jesus steps into a situation and says, first and foremost, what we need to do right now is pray, uh, and the rest of it will kind of look after itself. Whereas we will use everything that we've got to meet and respond to love and to care, and then maybe we'll pray as a kind of, a, a kind of finishing off the kind of moment uh, mode. It wasn't a prayer meeting kind of prayer, was it? Although Jesus spent a long time with his Father, and that's where the power comes from. But in those moments, he just stepped into a situation and prayed, and he prayed there and then. Nothing would stop him praying there and then, even the Sabbath He took the risk that someone might get healed on the Sabbath. He didn't care. He was just going to get in there and pray. And we read these ridiculous stories, don't we? Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone, even though it was the Sabbath. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he asked the guy to stretch out his hand. I'm much more likely to say, I will pray about that. We're in a conversation. We're in a situation with a need. I'm much more likely to say, I'll pray about that. Meaning, I'll pray later about it. Are you with me? Um, now, there's, what's the biggest problem about saying that? Is you don't do it. Yeah, you don't do it. And, and uh, uh, um, I, I've done that once. You know, and you might have done it. Okay, you, you know, I'll pray about that. And, oh, and if we only prayed the number of times we said we'd pray about something, we might have seen a lot more happen. And so what Jesus, Jesus never says, I'll, I'll go away and pray about that. You've got a shriveled hand, my friend. I'll go away and pray about that. Uh, we need more food on this filter. I'll go away and pray about that. Jairus' daughter's dead. I'll go away and pray about that. He's right in there all the time. There and then. And if we do offer to pray for people there and then, I think... It's amazing how open people are. We live in a very open spiritual climate at the moment. The world is very spiritually open. It wasn't always like that. Uh, The last 20 years has been a significant change. So if we're not that connected with the culture, we might feel like the world is closed. Actually, the world is very open to spirituality. They'll grab at anything they can get. So, to say I'll pray with you or for you, it doesn't seem anything like as weird as it does to, uh, as perhaps it used to. Uh, and I think people are more accepting of that than we sometimes give them uh, credit for. So, pray there and then is what Jesus did. And he made his prayers brilliantly short and simple. Come out. He didn't even say Amen. Be opened. In fact, the longest prayer, I think, was for the feeling of the 5,000 when he just lifted it up to heaven and thanked his Father with it. Be cleansed, be still. Lazarus, come out. It's a Good job he said Lazarus because all of the graves would have come out, wouldn't it? So you've got to be careful what you pray for. Jesus wasn't big on long prayers in this context. Uh, And that is a real encouragement to me because discipleship is helping others to do what you are doing. And do you know what kills the prayer meeting? It's when the old sage prays the really long, theologically deep prayer. <sighs> and everyone goes, I can't possibly pray now because I don't know any of those words. And my prayer will just sound stupid and simple. Are you with me? You all wish you would have prayed before that person prayed because now you just can't do it? Well, we can all do Jesus' types of prayers because we've only got to remember two or three words. We can write them on our hands if we're afraid we're going to forget. And he makes it really simple. A long, complicated prayer kills it dead. That's not the mode we're in right now. That's not to say that Jesus didn't spend long and extended times with his Father. The two go hand in hand. It's not either or, but there's a context and a place for everything. Pray short and simple prayers and then proclaim uh, the kingdom, which is what Jesus did In fact, uh, when John's disciples came to Jesus after John had been beheaded and they were anxious about whether Jesus was really the one, Jesus writes back to them and so sends a message back. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And even when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we expect him to, in the time frame we expect him to, I think many of us will know, if you stop and you pray for someone, something happens in that moment, in here. Something always happens. And so what do we put in our discipleship toolkit? We just put very simple prayers, that I'm going to pray there and then with a sense of confidence and boldness. And I know it's not confident and it's not bold when we begin because we feel uh, unsure of ourselves, uncertain. But the more we do it, the more we stretch that particular muscle, the easier it will become. Uh, And one of the most beautiful moments are when people kind of just weave naturally prayer into ordinary life. Don't make a big song and dance about it, but Jesus is here right now, so I'm going to pray for that with you right now. And we expect God to be at uh, work. And as we do that, as we move about looking for those people of peace, as we reach out to people in the need that they have and make prayer a priority, we will find those who are open to us. There will be those that we can take by the hand and lead on and into faith from wherever they are right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the way... Jesus, in in so many senses, has given us such simple models, such simple instructions. Simple to understand, yet hard sometimes for us to embrace. But we all know the joy and the release of praying with someone, just very simply. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to keep those prayers in those moments simple, because it reminds us that you don't move and act because we use clever or complicated words. It reminds us that we don't twist your arm because of the, the, the many different phrases we use in our prayers. But we can come to you very simply and lift people into your presence and ask that you would be at work in their lives. And as you said time and time again, after times like that, the kingdom of God has come near. Thank you that every time I pause And I pray for someone, even if the words are three or four words, it brings the kingdom of God near. So help me, encourage me, strengthen me, give me boldness, help me to seize the moments. And when I'm about to say, I'll pray for that later, help me to say, would you mind? I'm going to pray for that now, in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, we just say that we're here, we're ready, we're available, we're yours. And we love the fact that you long to use us. We love the fact that you believe in us. You believe that we can do what you did. That you will work in and through us like we saw the Spirit working in and through you. And that when you said to those first disciples, come follow me. When you say today, come follow me. You are saying that you believe we can become like you. Little Jesus is all over Ipswich. Little Jesus gathering people in meals. Little Jesus is praying for people where we find them. Little Jesus is opening the Bible and doing soap together, helping people listen and respond. Little Jesus is building community where people are loved and cared for, where people connect with heaven and people get sent out. To that end, Spirit of God, fall afresh on us, we pray. Let's stand together Andrew.